0: I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about <laughs> the. <laughs> Welcome to the History of Ireland. The Four Courts was in smithereens. Rory O'Connor and his anti-IRA men who'd been stationed there were all arrested. And the Civil War was well on its way. But what's often glossed over when talking about the Four Courts is that fighting wasn't contained to that complex of buildings alone. In fact, fighting broke out across the city and continued for days after the fall of the forecourts. The conflict became known as the Battle of Dublin. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. When the Free State Army started surrounding the forecourts, anti-IRA forces elsewhere in Dublin quickly began to barricade themselves all over the city. On June 29th, on O'Connell Street, Cahill Brewer and a man named Oscar Trainer began to create a new base of operations in a number of buildings on the east side of O'Connell Street. All in all, they took 14 buildings and it quickly became known as the Block. Joined by Trainer and Brewer, you had the who's who of anti-treaty forces. The garrison, around 100 strong, included people like Countess Markovitz, Sean T. O'Kelly, Austin Stack and even De Valera. Yeah, these were the heavy hitters. Soon, Brewer was named commandant and began to lead the forces. A mix of IRA, common amman and even some Irish citizen's army led by Markiewicz. The first order was to fortify the block. Unfortunately, the building at the centre of the block, a hotel named the Hammond, had a big, wide entranceway and the anti-IRA forces well, had nothing to defend it with. So what do they do? 30 men were sent across the road to the city tramway offices, which helpfully was packed with luggage, bags, trunks and the like, that could easily be used to create a makeshift wall. The next job was to connect the buildings of the block. To do this, they began digging holes in the walls to create connecting tunnels. One man described it like this, between all the houses, shops and hotels in the block, it was possible to move freely from Lipton in Earl Street to Gresham Hotel. This meant that we, the occupying troops, were supplied with the necessities, even luxuries of life in abundance. We had deep mattresses, thick blankets, joints of lamb, boxes of chocolates, Turkish or Egyptian cigarettes, or choice of any other brand we wanted. It must have been such a strange juxtaposition. The chaos of breaking through the walls as the deafening roars of the guns bombing the forecourts contrasted with, well, the very height of Irish luxury. And all the while, there were snipers from both sides placed on buildings all over the city. And mines planted throughout the streets. One reporter wrote, "How snipers became active on the roofs of houses all around the area, and again the tragic spectacle was witnessed of ambulances passing to and fro with wounded to the hospitals." The mines were placed by anti-Treaty IRA forces outside their bases of operation, in the hope of destroying the deadly armored cars being used by the Irish Free State Army. One commander noted how his men, quote, gradually worked themselves into a frenzy, hoping that next time a mine would blow the car to blazes. Civilians had rubbernecked on the first day of the fighting, but things started to quieten down as the days dragged on. This was a war breaking out in the middle of the country's biggest city and civilians were terrified. Here's the testimony of one hotel owner, whose hotel was taken over by Trainer and his men. They established their headquarters in the dining room. First thing they did was to knock all the glasses out of the doors and windows. They sandbagged the windows and stuck guns between the bags. They allotted different rooms to their various purposes. They cleared out all visitors, about 40 giving them barely time to pack their bags. They cleared out the staff, but I refused to go. We were not allowed to pass through the rooms they occupied. I can't remember how we put in our time during the occupation. I was halfway out of my mind, thinking of all the money I owed to the bank, which financed the purchase of the place, and now I saw the possibility of the whole place going up in smoke. This was the reason I refused to leave. Although they pointed out the risk, I was running by staying. They had the doors barricaded with my good tables and furniture. Whether you side with the pro or anti-treaty side here, I do think it's important to consider these poor civilians in the middle of all this. This hotel owner, Annie Farrington, well, she was one brave cookie to stick out the fighting And try to protect her poor business. Once the forecourts had fallen, the Free State began working through the streets, slowly but surely dislodging anti IRA forces throughout the city. The fighting was intense. Imagine constant gunfire, exploding mines, the fear of snipers, and all sorts flying back and forth between the streets for days. But it really was a case to quote a more musical rendition of another revolution, that the anti-treaty IRA were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned. And that's as good a moment as any to take a moment and talk about how the Irish Free State Army slowly developed over the course of 1922. So let's pause the dramatic battle of Dublin and do a little flashback to the foundation of the Irish Free State Army. Obviously, the original thinking was that the IRA would simply become the Irish Free State Army once the treaty was signed and the Free State created. This, well, as you can guess, proved a little difficult, as it very quickly became clear that the main force the Irish Free State Army would be fighting was the IRA. But remember, not all the IRA was anti treaty and the Free State did have a pool of men to recruit from. The first batch came from Dublin IRA men loyal to Collins, including members of the squad. On January 31st, 40 men were decked out in green uniforms and took over the British garrison at Beggar's Bush. It then took the rest of the year to slowly build up and prepare this new army. One of the reasons Collins, Griffith and the like were slow to attack anti-treaty IRA is because they were still bloody well putting together this new Free State Army. Some argue that if Roy O'Connor and Liam Lynch had attacked earlier they may have stood a much better chance. Instead the Free State Army had time to build itself up and prepare for the oncoming war. By the time of the Battle of Dublin The Free State Army had about 8,000 men, which wasn't too bad. Plus, they were decked out with the very best weaponry the British was willing to give them. Interestingly, at this point, they still referred to themselves confusingly as the IRA, while they referred to the anti-treatyites as irregulars. This kind of couldn't continue, though, as the new Irish state wasn't a republic, and the name kind of made the British well, just a little bit squeamish. Around the time of the Battle of Dublin, they began to be known as the National Army. For clarity's sake, though, we're going to stick to Free State Army, if that's okay with you. So the Free State Army began to surround the block as they had done with the forecourts. As one man inside the block put it, all except Brewer seemed at a loss as to what they should do, or even where they should be. Brewer wanted to get out in the streets and hit the free state with guerrilla tactics that had worked so well against the british but trainer well he didn't want to put civilians needlessly at risk and instead they started to retreat deeper into the block on sunday the 2nd of july pro treaty forces began to take bits of the block only to find them deserted one man who gives a great account of the whole time, John Pinkman, describes it like this. It was a dangerous, nerve-wracking task as we searched for the hole in the wall that would lead into the next building. The holes to be made in the walls by the irregulars, who torn away the bricks until they'd made gaps large enough to permit them to crawl from one house to the next along the entire length of the block between Parnell Street and Findlater Place. As we made our way through the buildings, we sometimes found ourselves being shot at from behind and realized we had bypassed the irregulars. Sometimes we even fired an error at our own lads as we raced from room to room searching frantically for those holes torn in the brickwork. Can you imagine how stressful this would have been? Slowly working your way through each room, shouting clear, then having shots fired from behind you because you'd missed something? Or jumping as you turned around a corner, shot your pistol, only to realize you were shooting at your own men? This was tense, horrible fighting. Pinkman describes at one point how they found a sniper ahead of them. He was resting on some pillows, with his rifle aimed out of the window and his fingers closed around the trigger. They froze, terrified that anyone who stepped forward would be shot through the head. They shouted for the man to surrender, but nothing. Silence. Would someone dare to step forward? Eventually they had to. Turns out, the man was dead already. He'd been shot through the head. It just happened that his corpse was lying there, still holding his rifle. They'd been working through the block for hours at this point. And at 2am on Monday 3rd, it was time for a full-scale attack on the block. As one onlooker described, a vigorous attack on the position of the irregulars was made by armoured cars and machine gun lorries. One armoured car took up its position just at the Metropole, another at the corner of Talbot Street, and a third on the other side of Nelson's Pillar. From here, they poured in rapid fire on the positions with machine guns and rifle grenades. The Irish Free State Army put out a statement saying, the Dublin Guard's enveloping movement in the O'Connell Street area is near completion. The irregulars now only occupy that part of O'Connell Street stretching from the tramway's company's office to find later place. This block of buildings is now completely surrounded. Inside the block, Kathleen Barry and some other women tried to lighten the mood by making cocktails for the men. Though no one was too impressed, and the women were told to take it out to the Free Staters, where it could prove lethal. No good deed, am I right? Even if the cocktails were no good, the defences were, and it was proving increasingly difficult to unwedge the anti-treaty forces from the block. Fighting lasted all day and long into Tuesday morning. The Irish Times wrote how the gunners appeared to pick out particular objectives in the hotels, upon which they poured a withering fire, which was occasionally returned by the garrison. Machine guns were brought into operation, while smoke bombs and grenades were frequently hurled by the attackers. The withering machine gun fire soon became too much for those inside, and white flags slowly started being raised in the different spots around the block. Though Cahill Brewer himself refused to surrender, it became clear there was no way he or his men would leave the block until they really had no option. So, the 18 pounder guns that had been used on the forecourts were rolled in and pointed directly at Gresham Hotel, where Brewer and the anti-IRA were now hiding. Now, just a quick clarification. Last episode, I described these 18-pounders as heavy guns. And they were big in the context of the Irish War. But as pointed out by helpful listener John Moore, these were standard field artillery of the time. And field artillery are the smallest of the battlefield guns. So really, in the grand scheme of things, they were actually small enough. But, you know, I imagine they didn't feel all that small to those in the Gresham. The 18-pounder descended on the Gresham, joining the machine guns. The photos of the damage are crazy. One reporter describes how on Wednesday morning, in every house lay the litter of the combat. Such as empty cartridge cases, live cartridge cases which had jammed in a Lewis gun, rifles fitted with auxiliary caps for firing, missiles and bombs. It missed the damage, he does also include this great tidbit, describing how there were tired soldiers taking a hasty rest or brewing a cup of tea. He continues At eleven thirty I saw approaching the armoured lorries which made the first attempt. Into one of the breaches they flung about a dozen bombs. A few minutes later a more successful attempt was made. Another minute and the unused rifle cartridges began to explode with the heat. One by one at first and then in continuous succession as if two or three machine guns were firing from the building. Brewer. Inside, quote, remained undaunted, comforting the wounded, encouraging the defenders, never allowing his own nerve to slacken for a moment. With the Gresham now on fire, Brewer retreated to another hotel, the Granville. Quickly, the guns turned on that hotel, and by 5 pm, it too was on fire. Eventually, Brewer had no choice to order his men to surrender. At 7pm, waving a white flag, the anti-treaty forces came out of the hotel. One woman in the group remembers seeing Brua praying. As we were marching out, I passed through what had been the Turkish baths, and saw Cahal Brua kneeling on a mat and confessing to one of the friars, I shall never forget that sight. It was his last confession. Knowing he was about to be arrested, Brewer tried to make a break for it. A fireman described how, as they broke down the back doors of the Granville, quote, a low-sized, smoke-stained man rushed out with a revolver drawn. It was Brewer. He sprinted down Thomas Lane, only to find his way blocked by a group of Irish Free State men. Halt, the leading officer would have said. But Brewer, bloodied, tired, but as always, stubborn and determined, refused. He continued towards them when <tossed noise> a volley of shots were let off. Brewer fell to the ground. A bullet had caught his femoral artery. Linda Kearns, a common man member, stayed with him holding the severed artery between her fingers. And he was rushed to the hospital, where he died two days later. Now listeners will know, I've never liked Brewer all that much. He romanticised violence, was an inefficient, jealous minister for defence, and let his personal opinions get in the way of his politics. This dramatic last stand was kind of right up his alley. But it should be said, That he, along with others like Traynor, led the men at the Battle of Dublin bravely. Brewer died standing up for the Republic he believed in. And there's something commendable in that. His death and the surrender of Granville marked the end of the Battle of Dublin. Almost a week of intense fighting, bombing, and violence. But sadly, the civil war was only getting started. Brewer may have been one of the first big, high-profile figures to die in the Irish Civil War, but unfortunately, he definitely would not be the last. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening, and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy.